Welcome back to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Startup stories are often stuff of dreams. And today's podcast is a story about one of tech's most unlikely venture capitalists. Journalist and professional soccer player turned immigrant, turned best car washer in San Jose, turned Persian rug salesman, turned top Silicon Valley seed investor, Pejman Nozad of Pair VC, comes on the show to chronicle his journey that has crossed continents to back many of tech's top companies. While his story has taken him many places, one thing has stayed constant, his ability to build relationships and connect with people. And that talent has enabled him to succeed in building a top seed fund in pair with his partner and serial entrepreneur, Mar Hershenson, where they've backed the likes of DoorDash, Gusto, Garden Health, Aurora, and many more. Pejman shares everything from how to build relationships to how to build a seed fund. We discussed what he looks for in founders, why family is so important, how Pear has built out a multitude of products and services for founders across pre-seed and seed, how companies can go from zero to product market fit, and why some of the largest institutional LPs are interested in a dedicated pre-seed and seed strategy. I also learned that he makes some really good Persian tea, which is apparently even better than Sadaf. It was a pleasure to have Pejman on the show to share a story for the ages and one that is still being written. Pejman, welcome to the Yoko's Mainstream Podcast. Michael, thank you so much for having me. You're among the few people who say my name so correctly. So thank you for that. Absolutely. No, I got to get it right. Well, I think that's a great entree into your origin story and your background of how you ultimately ended up in VC. You have such an incredible story that I'd be remiss not to start there. I'll just start with saying that I think you've been called tech's most unlikely venture capitalist. So how did you get here? Yeah, well, thank you so much. I, I couldn't use a better word to describe myself in this sentence. As you know, I grew up in Iran when I was 10 years old, the revolution happened. And two years after the war with Iraq happened. So my teenager life was like combination of a war and post-revolution era. I grew up being a very tough kid surviving. I was a very good soccer player. I played for big clubs in Iran and I ended up being a sports journalist. I hosted actually one of the most popular sports radio talk show, like what you do today. But imagine you're 18 years old and LeBron James of your country or Messi of your country sits in front of you. So it was amazing. I went to college. I dropped college after two years and I decided to leave Iran. My parents left Iran before me and I spent two years in military in Iran training, but I mostly played professional soccer. I ended up going to Germany. They gave me a scholarship to play soccer. One day, my brother took me to uh, Frankfurt. By just pure luck, I got visa to come to U.S. I arrived in 1992, right here in Bay Area, <clears throat> small town called San Carlos next to Stanford. I didn't speak one word English. I had no plan, and I had a few hundred dollars. The problem was I was in love with the girl in Iran, and I thought, okay, I'm going to lose her, so let's call her every day. 
This is 1992. There was no internet phone. There was no Skype or WhatsApp or anything like today. So I had to get a bag of quarter every day, go to this payphone in downtown San Carlos. And I don't know, it was like three, four dollars per minute. So my money was gone in a few weeks. And what do you do in America? I had no plan. I managed to buy a 1973 Chevrolet for five payments of 150 bucks because I did not have money. And I found a job in San Jose at the car wash. So I drove every day for an hour, washed cars for eight to 10 hours, come back again. But I rest assure you, Michael, I was the best car washer the world has ever seen. I washed cars like diamond. They looked like diamond after. My English improved. I got a job at the yogurt shop and I ran out of money. I slept in my car. I slept in the street and I asked the owner of the yogurt shop to let me slip in an attic above the yogurt shop. So I I literally lived in an attic for a few months while opening up the shop every morning, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., go to college, exercise, shower, and come back. I saw an advertising for a Persian rug store in downtown Palo Alto on University Avenue. I called. They rejected me on the phone, but I insisted that they should meet me. So I showed up the next day, they hired me on the spot. So I became a rock salesman in America. And and fast forward, I sold a lot of rugs. A few years in a row, I sold a couple of million dollars worth of rugs, which most of our startups cannot reach that in a few years. I did that with a huge profit margin, by the way. And as you know, Persian rugs, you come to to store and say, Pageman, I bought a home in San Francisco and I'm looking for rugs for my living room. So you and I, we start to look at rugs and ultimately we bring these rugs to your home. By going to people's home, you spend an hour, two hours with them. You get to know them. And and then fast forward six, seven years into this, I realized everyone who's buying rugs from me, they're either venture capitalists, founders of tech companies, even if they are lawyer or bankers, they're in tech. And I was in awe, not mainly because there were wealthy people, they afforded big homes, afforded Persian rugs. But when I asked them what you do, I always thought businesses is you making things physically and you sell it. I never knew that you can build massive companies, create jobs, create so much wealth based on knowledge. I felt this is an opportunity for me. I'm very lucky to be part of this community, have this access, being 2000 steps from Stanford University. And why not try to be part of this group of people? So I decided to ask a lot of questions. I was very lucky to have access to people we normally cannot meet. These are founders of biggest tech companies, venture capitalists like Doug Leone, Mike Moritz. I was hanging out with them and having barbecue while asking questions. So I built like really great network by pure luck. With no plan and no design, it just happened organically. Then I partnered with the owner of the rug gallery to invest in startups, but I didn't have money. We started in late 90s when it wasn't really fashionable to be angel investor to start to invest. And we did terrible investments. We didn't know what we were doing, but I kept going. For me, it was very clear this is like playing in NBA, but I won't be Steph Curry or LeBron James, but I can be the best agent the league has ever seen. This is at the time, if you remember, late 90s, the only access founders have to venture capitalists by managing somehow to show up on their Sand Hill Road office. And venture capitalists were very tied up. I mean, they were not leaving their office. They were not wearing jeans. And I broke that. I brought them to the rug gallery with a few hundred entrepreneurs. 
serving Persian food. Both of this group absolutely loved it. I think founders had access to top-tier VCs and venture capitalists really liked the atmosphere. So the board got out that I have a really, really good network. And little by little, I learned the world around me. And I ended up being the first investor in Dropbox, Adapar, AppLovin, Gusto, Garden Health, some massive category-defining companies. But I use really my network and even the rug gathering in the right way. I remember people really are very famous for the Persian tea I serve, but the Persian tea I was serving wasn't anything that you go to even the best restaurant, they put tea bag in hot water and bring it to you and you think this is Persian tea. Mine was like operation from 7A, brewing this amazing tea. The tea set was bringing to you was when you go to a palace of a king, it was with dried food. It was just nicely designed. And I didn't know people like this. I just did it. But many years after, even today, I talk to people say, oh, Pajman, I love your office at the Rug Gallery because you go to this like very fancy venture capital offices. It's very boring. It's very tied up. We came over there and we opened it up talking about food, culture, families, before even we talk the product. And even Dropbox founders, they tell this story that we went to Pageman's office, the Rock Gallery, and we talk about how do we build a big company? What are the principles? Without even talking about what's going on in the file share industry, how do we compete with Google and Apple? And, and I think that stayed with me all the way today. And then I started to invest. I made money. I started to do this professionally, like full-time angel investing. Around 2009, 10, 10, I realized founders raised a million dollars or two, and then some VC firms are involved, and I'm an angel investing, but most right after starting a company. And I felt there's an opportunity to build an institution to serve founders at day zero. The question was, can I walk to a room full of founders and claim PageMoney is your best partner, take my capital? The answer was no. Although I knew the whole system, I had a great track record, but I never built and shipped product. And I knew the DNA of this firm should be part me, part somebody who built companies. So I reached out to my current partner, Mar Hershenson. We know each other for 23 years. I actually funded her husband's company, Danger, in 2000, which later, Andy was one of the co-founders with Andy Rubin and started another company, which became Android. So I got to know Mar through her husband's Matt. And I was very lucky to invest in Mars' second company in 2004, which she sold to a public company. So we built a great relationship. So I actually syndicated a $2.5 million seed round for Mars. And this is 2004. Remember, there was no angel list, none of these things. So we had to go to people's home. I take Mars to people's home. Mars was making the pitch, and we had to take the check and go deposit to the bank like, physically. Uh, today, I think you go on angel list for, for <laughs> click and button to buy money. So throughout that process, we built a really good bond, getting to know each other, and that bond states. We got to know each other, our families. So it took me four years to convince Mar. Every time I was going to talk to her, she says, no, you're crazy. We don't know how to be a venture capitalist. Finally, I changed strategy. I said, Mar, listen, why did you come to this cafe called Cooper Cafe? As you know, it's a very famous cafe next to Stan. Meet founders with me and provide feedback as an entrepreneur. She came and spent 30 minutes and then 45 minutes, an hour. She was hooked after two months and she said, you won, I gave up. So we started Pair VC in 2013, actually 10 years ago today. We are kind of yin and yang. I'm a college dropout. She's a Stanford PhD. 
I never worked for this startup. She actually built three startups. She was a professor at Stanford. She has 14 patents. I have zero patents, but I had a lot of scars on my body as an angel investor. Since then, we built Pair. I pause here, but the ambition is to build the best performing seed fund ever existed and we'll build the firm for the future. I have so many questions with that incredible story, and it's, maybe it's fitting that you're drinking tea, but first, do you still serve Sadaf tea to all your founders? I'm surprised that you know the Sadaf. We have moved the new office. I'm working on the operation over there. I don't know I'm the best venture capitalist in Indian Mesut, but I'm the best Persian tea maker in Silicon Valley. I rest assured you. That, that honestly sounds like a good enough hook to get a lot of people to come over and build relationships with you. And yes, we may joke about this, but it does really get into something so core to investing, particularly at early stages, which is that it's about people. I most recently talked to John Burbank and Ken Wallace from Nimble, and Ken was formerly from industry. They obviously know you and, and Mar and invested in you, both at their prior firms and currently, and they actually both mentioned you in their podcast. And that was because you have a unique advantage when it comes to building relationships with people, having an incredible network. So I'd love to get into a little bit about that and how the skills from your prior experiences that you learned. I mean, effectively, you yourself were a startup. If you think about the trials and tribulations of what you went through to get here, you were a startup and built a business that turned into pair and everything that you're doing. But understanding of people will seem to be so core to that. What do you look for in people that's made you become a talent magnet, find the best talent, invest in the best talent, build great relationships, perhaps over tea? Building relationship for me is not a task. Networking is not a task. You know, some people confuse that it's okay. I work till 6 p.m. and I go network. I genuinely interested to get to know people. It doesn't matter you're in tech, you are a bartender, or you're a teacher, or you're a soccer coach. I just want to get to know people. So that's at core. I think I have an advantage for doing this for over 20 years and be in the room of some of the most successful tech entrepreneurs and how do, do they think, how do they behave, what are the priorities, what are the principles. So I learned a lot from them. And now at Pair, we continue doing the same thing. We are looking for entrepreneurs who are building long-lasting companies. And what we look for are those founders who have deep domain expertise in particular market. Uh, they have lived through the problem they are solving, or they have academic background. Uh, they are committed to be entrepreneur. They have an insane desire to build the product that people love or companies love. They are paranoid in a very healthy way. They wake up in the morning, they know where they are taking this company, but they question themselves. I think people who have ability to attract talent. And then finally, I think we like captains of the ship, people who really believe their team, their customers is, is above themselves with, with the leadership skills. Obviously, we look at the size of the market. We want to make sure that if things working down the road, it becomes a massive big company. Therefore, we take a lot of risk. And many of the companies we invest these days and has been throughout the history of pair that are pre-product. So you're really at its core backing people early on. If someone were to sit down and hear your story, they would want to just back you because the, the, there's so many instances where it's clear, no matter what you face, you're going to be successful. 
What are the certain commonalities that you've seen in terms of the founders that have been successful in your portfolio? You're seeing them so early on before they've developed into the big companies, the Dropboxes, the Gustos, et cetera, of the world that they've become. What are the common traits that you see in these founders when you're talking to them so early on? Interestingly, when for the first time I met Josh Reeves, the co-founder and CEO of Gusto, it was over a conversation um, at a cafe in San Francisco, and he didn't even show me the pitch deck. We talked about, he's thinking about payroll, and we talked about the future of this company and what the product looked like. But he said something that stuck with me, and I felt that he said it in a very genuine way. He said, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to build company for next 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it takes. And I see among the best entrepreneurs are back, they're on the mission to make the, their company and their product last for many, many years. Drew still is on the running Dropbox. And if you look at it, many companies are like that. Look at Larry Ellison. He's still involved in Oracle. I have so much admiration for these people. I talked about the core character and dedication of the founders to a particular market and problem. They have insight that nobody else has about that customer or product, obviously the size of the market. But what I've seen among the best entrepreneurs are few things. Insane amount of focus. You literally don't see these founders anywhere. They spend time with their customers and with their team, nothing else. Unfortunately, some founders, they think if they hang out with venture capitalists, things will happen for their company. It will not happen. Venture capitalists don't make companies. Founders do. And I think you have to spend all your time with your customers and your team. So one, the founders of long-lasting companies are incredible learners. They're hungry to learn and grow. We took a bunch of Stanford students a few years ago before... Dropbox went public to have a private conversation with Drew Houston, the CEO of Dropbox. And one of the students asked Drew, when you started Dropbox, you were kind of a hacker. You didn't manage people. And now you're taking a $10 billion company public, a few thousand people work for you. How did you go from being a hacker to be a CEO of a company that hundreds of millions of people are using your product? And he said, yes, that was true. I wasn't a good CEO, but I decided that I can be a good CEO if I spend time and learn. And I started to read a lot of books about it. And I met people and asked questions. So you should grow with your companies. You know, the most successful entrepreneurs, they grow with their company. By the way, Drew has that list of books online. If you search for Drew Houston book recommendation, is around 17 books that I recommend everybody to read a few of those books. On that point, is I think that's such a key insight in early stage investing is picking founders who have the ability to grow in lockstep with the growth of their company. What are the things early on that you're testing for and that you see when that happens? Sure, learning, and I think you can get that in conversation. Is there anything else that you find with founders who are able to grow with their companies? Well, I think it's very clear the depth of knowledge they have when we talk about the product and market. We ask questions, yeah, they go deeper and they go deeper, they go deeper, they go deeper, they open it up. And he said, oh my God, this person knows so much about drones or so much about drug discovery. And it shows they have spent so much to learn about this. 
So you, you can pick up some signs about them. It's nothing that you can predict, but there are some early signs about the knowledge they have this product, this product or market and how much they have trained themselves to know it. It's very clear. You know, many founders come, they have some sort of knowledge and they know it, but not deep enough. So I think there are some early signs, but it's very hard to predict. And then kind of flipping to you and Pear in the context of evaluating people and finding founders early on, it seems like one of your real edges as an investor is your ability to find and attract talent very early and build an incredible network. How do you think that unfolds in today's world of venture capital? We live in a world where now people can be remote, so either remote work or remote investing. You now live in a world where seed deals get done faster than they have before when you had time to evaluate founders, spend more time with them, get to know them, get to know the essence of a person. So how do you think about Pear's sustainable edge going forward in that context? Sure. Um, let me go back a little bit, tell where Pear stands in the whole system of the startups. If you look at the, um, the life of a startup from day zero which may be idea or even minus zero when you just don't have an idea there's a talent. And then a big exit, let's assume the big exit is an IPO. There are firms that are doing exceptional job post-product market fit. These are some of the multi-stage firms. You can talk about Sequoia, Greylog, Benchmark. There are some specialists, Ribbit Capital, Emerges, and some growth investors. But nobody has become the leader or the best fund in the world at zero to product market fit, which is at pre-seed seed to series A. Our aspiration is to be the number one firm in the world and be the leader of the pre-seed and seed. So we are pre-seed and seed specialists. We're not there yet, but that's how we work towards it. So our goal is becoming the best pre-seed seed fund ever existed that help entrepreneurs going from zero to product market fit, which means in VC language, from precedency to series A, you can raise more capital. In order to fulfill that, that mission and promise, we build a team and infrastructure who are really, really good at identif identifying talent and help them to get to product market fit. So as a result of it, there are a few things we built at Pair. One is the investment team have built and sold 10 companies to Cisco, Instacart, Zynga, Yahoo, so a bunch of entrepreneurs. If you come to our office and you have an idea, we have a team that can go on the whiteboard and say, okay, let's figure out who is your customer? How big is this market? Who do you need to hire? What kind of a product you need to build and how much capital you need? And then if things doesn't work, we just go back again on the whiteboard. So it's, it's just entrepreneur at heart. Obviously we have operators who have been working at tech companies at, at Google and Uber and Instacart. So there's a lot of large scale operating skill set. And the other one is the services we provide to entrepreneurs. One of the services we have, we built perhaps the best talent team at Seed, which I don't think any other Seed firms in the world has the, the, the amount of the infrastructure we built. So we hired Matt Brimbaum, who was the head of global talent at Instacart, and he took Instacart from 300 to 3,000 people. Matt came on board and hired three other senior recruiters from SpaceX, Uber, and Brex. So we have a team of four senior recruiters in-house. If you partner with Pair, you hire your people. 
I give you the data, since January 1st, we hired 27 people for our companies. And these are the companies who raise 500000 to $2 million. They can't afford to hire an agency. Even if they want to, they don't get the quality of what we do. You're building the same team for go-to-market and marketing and fundraising. Pair is a combination of the investment team plus the services we provide. The changes that we have done last two and a half years is, in addition to be generalists, we added partners who are specialists in each market. So we have a partner who's a specialist in biotech, in fintech, in SaaS, in consumer, in healthcare, in climate tech, in AI, and enterprise tech. So that's basically pair as a whole. How do we find talent is all the sourcing platform we put together. I think the era of doing, going to conferences and writing a little bit blog, it's just gone. I think you need to have your own differentiated sourcing in order to see the best companies. As you know, last year, I think a year before, over 6,200 companies started at pre-seed and seed. How do you find the best 10 or 20? Uh, I think you need to see these founders very early and build relationship. As a result, we build a, a, a master playbook to find entrepreneurs at a variety of different places. And I can pause here, I can d- get into it that how do we do these things and where we go to find entrepreneurs? Yeah, I I definitely want to go there. One thing that jumps out that's fascinating about what you said is that as Pair has evolved, you've evolved into this platform, right? Both in terms of services you're providing, as well as you have specialists in different areas and categories. And yet pre-seed and seed is also so much about people. So how do you think about that interplay between having specialists on staff, whether they be post-investment and you're helping companies get from, from pre-seed to A, or specialists in the sense of like their fintech sector experts or biotech sector experts relative to understanding people like we talked about and, and just backing the founders in that context. And how do you kind of think about that interplay between those two things at pre-seed and seed? Well, I, I think if you want to be a, a top performing fund, you have to find the best entrepreneurs early. And I think it's a combination of understanding the market and people. So I think if you're just a good picker on people, it's not enough. Then you need to have deep expertise. Like if somebody comes and talk about fintech and biotech, I have partners who build companies in those spaces and took them public. So we can have a real conversation, understand why you, why now, what is the opportunity and being able to help them. I think I might be able to pick an amazing entrepreneurs, but I can't help an entrepreneur in biotech or in fintech. My partners can do. And the other one is part of the venture capital is winning. If you have a team who are experts in each sector, you can win more companies and be partnered with the best entrepreneurs. And I think the best entrepreneurs wanted a few things. Obviously, other than capital, I think they need an investor who is a long-term investor. They understand building company from ground up. But at the same time, they offer other services other than just being on the board and deep expertise in your market. I think we build... A, a team who be who's able kind of recognize talent early, but have deep domain expertise to convince the entrepreneurs to partner with us and help them the next 10, 20 years. On that point, how much of a function has the competitive market that Seed has become been the driving force behind adding all of these services? Are you talking about founders picking and then venture capitalists winning those deals at pre-seed and seed? What do you think is the reason why you're winning deals over others? Well, first of all, I don't think there is one model only in venture capital works. I think you can have a variety of different models at a variety of different stages. If you think about 
Sequoia, Benchmark, Y Combinator, there are three different complete models, but they're all very successful. So I think in the venture capital business, you need to pick a strategy, one, that you think you're very good at it, you love to do it for many, many years, and you stay very truthful to your skills. We wanted to help entrepreneurs go from zero to product market fit and build everything needed in that space. That includes the investment team, the platform, the capital, the marketing. We decided to do that. You could do pre-seed and seed the benchmark model, that you're a small team, I'm your best board partner, and we do few investments a year. That works also. But you have to be the best in the role at whatever you're doing. The reason I think we are winning entrepreneurs at the earliest stages is everything that I said. The investment team, obviously the track record. We build the culture at Pair. We work as one team. I know many venture capital firms, you hug your own companies and you go present Mondays. Pair works as a team. I might find a company, Mar wins that entrepreneurs, but somebody else in my team who's deep expert started to work with them. But at any given time, the entire team works for that entrepreneur. I play professional soccer, so I feel Pair is a soccer team. Everybody plays. People have different responsibilities. We just want to score a goal and win. But if my team said, Pageman, I think we don't need you today. You should sit on the bench. I don't need to play. I sit on the bench and I bring water bottle and towel to my team. So that's the spirit of there. Total football really works, doesn't it? Yes. It, it absolutely does. I think what that gets to is something so interesting about the way you've built and evolved pair over time as well. You mentioned something earlier that I think is fascinating in terms of there's different ways to build VC firms and have them be successful. You've built different pieces of pair to achieve the goal that you stayed out, be the best pre-seed seed firm in the world. What is the productization of pair looked like and how have you thought about that with the different programs you've had, ways in which you've constructed the business? You know, since day one, when we started in that coffee shop, Coupa Cafe, the mission hasn't changed. Can we find the best entrepreneurs every year consistently and help them build big companies? What we learn as we try to do that, we learn where are these entrepreneurs? How do we find them? How do we convince them that Pair is your best partner? And what kind of the team infrastructure we should build to get there? And we try and we fail and we learn. Like for example, one of the products and offering we have called Pair X, this four and a half months pre-seed bootcamp. Every pre-seed investments we make, you have to go through this bootcamp. It's four and a half months. One third of it, you have to be in our office and we have a demo day at the end of the day. And it's pretty incredible. 90% of our companies raised money. A billion dollar company came out of it. But it wasn't like this the, the very first time we did. The very first time was and a bunch of founders came to our office in Palo Alto. We gave them $20,000 and then we were hanging around and we felt we're adding so much value. Let's continue doing it. So think of Pair as a startup that we understand the core product, which is investing in the next generation of best entrepreneurs. Around that, we keep innovating. How do we find the best entrepreneurs? What kind of value we add? We didn't have this recruiting agency in-house, the talent team. We didn't know we want, we should have it. But when you listen to entrepreneurs, your customers, um, you learn what they need. So we're constantly listening to the entire ecosystem and what they need. We built it. 
and we want to be the best at what we do. One of the examples I give you, we have a very successful program called Female Engineer Circle. We realize some of our best entrepreneurs are female engineers, and we decided to build a community for them. So two and a half years ago, my partner Vivian Ho launched the Female Founder Circle. We call for female engineers who are starting a company. It's a free program for 15 weeks. We match you with mentor. We meet you twice a month. Um, we have speaker series, workshops, whatever you need. And we build an amazing community. 27 companies came out of it. Sequoia has invested and this in Horowitz. We have invested in six or seven of them. But this was as a result of paying attention to our own portfolio and realizing there are great entrepreneurs out there. So you be constantly evolve and we constantly become what Pair looks like today and day one. At core is no difference, but completely different in terms of the offering, the services, and the team we built. You recently said in a PitchBook interview that you feel Pair has reached product market fit. We've talked a bit about that in the context of you're looking to help take companies from pre-seed and seed to product market fit. How have you thought about Pair reaching product market fit and what does that mean to you? Yeah, Pair's product market fit is we know exactly where we fit the entire ecosystem. We understand what are our values for entrepreneurs, what kind of entrepreneurs get funding from Pair, what kind of a team we built, and we need to build an infrastructure to continue to helping them. And in terms of the venture business, we understand now how to do portfolio construction, what size fund needed to do that, what type of LP we need, what is the investment pace of the firm. So it's a combination of internal operation and external and being a venture capital operation as a whole. So you mentioned thinking about portfolio construction, the right size fund. You had an incredibly successful fundraise recently. That fund was almost 3x the size of prior funds. Not surprising given the track record you have, DoorDash, Very Early, Gusto, Garden Health, a number of others, Dropbox. Why raise a fund 3x the size of prior funds? And what does this say about the broader seed market? Well, that's a very good question, Michael. So as you know, we raised four funds and we raise every three years. We've been very disciplined. Even at the time that... Venture capitalists were raising money every nine months. We resisted. I was talking to another really successful seat manager yesterday. I was saying uh, one of the biggest challenge is resisting the pressure from uh, the entire industry and market. Everybody raised a lot of money. Then I should go raise a lot of money. Everybody raised every one year. I should do the same thing. But for us, getting where we are, it was very deliberate and we were planning for it. So Fund One 2013 was $50 million, which is top 1% performing fund. And I think it's going to be a historic fund in terms of the return. Fund two, $75 million. On paper, we think is on par with fund one, but we don't know. Fund three was $160 million, and we raised $432 million fund four, which is no difference in terms of strategy. So this fund size, it doesn't mean we're going to entry a $10 million Series A check. We're constantly going to do the entry checks always precede and seed with over 55% of the fund reserve for follow-on. And the reason we raise more capital is exactly what I tell that we reach our more product market fit. We have an exceptional deal flow. So we want to do more companies and own more companies at the beginning. One of the things that we couldn't do before was 
the deal flow was really, really strong. And we got to some of the seed companies coming to us, raising five, six million dollars. We couldn't lead constantly with two, three, four million dollars investments in those companies when you have a smaller fund. Now we have the ability to write a bigger check and own more, both pre-seed and seed, and do more because we have a bigger team and we build the infrastructure. Eight, nine years ago, when Mar and I, we were investing in the company and the founder said, oh, page one, I need a founding engineer. So I was calling people, like everybody who I knew and Mar did the same thing. We didn't know, but we tried. But today you said, I need a founding engineer. We give you to our talent team and they do it. So the infrastructure, what we built, allow us to scale the number of the companies we do and deploy more capital. How do you think about portfolio construction now? And what are some of the biggest lessons learned as you've grown as a firm yourself and reached that product market fit? You know, this is a very funny business. I think at the end of a day, you'll know by only one or two companies, their entire portfolio. I was asking my team the other day, name investment that Bill Gurley has done. And Bill Gurley, when he talks and he tweets, the whole world pauses, lesson to him. And I don't think my team could have said anything more than Uber or one or two companies. I think the venture capital business is all about the outliers. And for me, no matter how you do portfolio construction, at the end of the day, there are those outliers that make the performance. But you need to have a strategy. You just cannot go spray and pray. So we've got to run a concentrated portfolio on pre-seed and seed. This fund will do 80 to 100 companies. Every year, we're going to do 20 to 25 pre-seed. And one of the things, it's advantage for us now when we do pre-seed, Instead of helping 25 companies across the year, which is very hard to do, especially the amount of work we, we are doing, we bring them to our pair X, which is batching them together. Rather than doing 25 sales workshop, we do it twice a year for two batches. And we bring speakers twice a year. We do demo day twice a year. So around 20, 25 precede, and we do around 10 to 15 seed companies a year. And Pre-seed investments is around $250,000 to uh, $2 million. We want to own anywhere between 8 to 15%. And for seed is one and a half to $5 million. We want to own 10 to 15 to 20% of the companies. Do we invest in the company? We ended up 5%. Yes, we have some flexibility. I learned 100% of zero is zero. That, that's an important lesson to learn in, in venture. And I think what that gets to is something so interesting about portfolio construction when it comes to reserves. I imagine if you could have, you would have put more money into your winners from your earlier funds over time, right? Because the cash on cash return ends up being so large, even as companies get to series B, C, D, et cetera. We did that actually fund one, which was $50 million. We invested in kind of the seed round door that's $250,000. And then Sequoia came in and we wrote, I think it's $400,000 or pro rata, which is given. You are $50 million fund, you invest in DoorDash is growing. Mm-hmm. So I think the DoorDash valuation, I think these are public com- public data, I think it's around $70 million post Series A, even though they The next round was at $600 million valuation when John Doerr came on board. And this was at the time that it wasn't given that this is a category even. And Uber was playing Postmate, DoorDash, and many others, like 20 others. And we decided to write a $1.4 million check into Series B, 
which even our LPs got really nervous. Your first time fund, are, why are we investing at $600 million valuation? But mainly was because we, we always keep such a close relationship with the management team. We knew their strategy. We knew how the team was thinking. We were talking to the board members. And had we had more money, we would have invested in the next round also. It was hard to go back to our LPs and say, we want to put the entire fund into to Torash. But think about it. Today is no brainer when you exit at $50 billion public, when you invest in 600 million. But it was a very hard decision to make. And I think one of the mistakes that seed managers especially do, the value companies on basically valuation versus the growth potential. And, and I think once you have the winner, you should go all in. The other interesting thing that you mentioned in there was that despite being relative to the amount of capital raised, a small check, you still maintained a close relationship with the founders and were able to understand what was going on, be able to talk to them about it. That's unique for some seed managers. Some investors invest early and then they hand companies off and then they don't spend a lot of time with a, a company as it grows. How do you think about that aspect of things, building a relationship, maintaining that relationship of trust where even when you may not be the, the biggest investor, you're still there? One is going back to the personal relation you make. I call, Michael, do you want to grab a coffee? And yeah, let's go. And then you learn. You don't need to have oh, can you give me an update on the company in the formal way? I think if you have a real relationship with the founder, you just meet them regularly. They come even talk to your companies. You give them speak and you just pick them over there. So constantly doing that. But I always reach out to our companies who are growing and said, what are the top three things you need? And they said, this, this, this. And I try to at least do something with one of them. So I'm looking for a CTO. And I make my life mission to have a couple of really good CTO candidate for that firm, even if it's like a billion dollar company. That shows that the commitment you have to your entrepreneurs, but mainly if you don't build trust from the beginning, it's just very hard to do any of these things. What, what do you think are the most important ways that you can build trust early on? Give before you get I think you always want to give before you get in a very real way. Is is not that you give, you expect. You can fake it um, that, okay, I'm giving you something, but I expect something back. But I think people realize that you could be a trusted partner for uh, good times and bad times. But I always provide value before even I get shares in the company. I think that's such a important thing, especially as seed gets more and more competitive, to be able to help and add value at various points in the business. I want to touch on something that you also said in a recent interview, which is fascinating for the LP community, which is that you said that some of the largest institutional LPs, presumably some of your own LPs, either from prior funds and continuing on in current fund or new LPs who you talk to as you raise this fund, are interested in dedicated pre-seed and seed stage strategies. Walk us through that comment, because there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I think we are incredibly lucky to have some of the most respected institution to be our LPs from Fund One. Um, these are university endowments, foundations, fund of funds, and some family offices. But throughout this process, I learned that some of the most historic LPs who have been investors of multi-stage firms, growth firms, and they have exceptional track record. 
who started to look at pre-seed and seed as a new class of venture capitalists. So they thought if you are an investor in multi-stage firms and multi-stage firms have a seed practice, you are covered. So you basically have covered the pre-seed and seed category, but it's proven that's not the case. I think if you want to have the best return in venture, especially for pre-seed or even for growth, you need to pick the best group of people who are doing specifically that. And we added a few large institutions who have not invested before in pre-seed and seed. And now they picked us and they're picking others to be in pre-seed and seed. So I think that's a good news for all the pre-seed and seed managers out there. But at the same time, the bar is obviously very high. You need to have a reason for them to be your partner. But I can see that pre-seed and seed used to be a little bit, but now I think LPs are looking at it that, okay, if I'm putting money in private equity and venture capital, and these are the areas, I need to have a pre-seed and seed specialist in my portfolio. What did the LPs who committed to your fund say to you about why they decided to commit? The differentiation we have as a whole, which is how do we source? As you know, we have incredible program at five at universities. 50% of our company is now founded by students. This company is worth over $15 million and growing. And then 50% of our company is now founded by product managers, engineers, second time founders. But we built a very differentiated sourcing platform. And we built the team to partners taking entrepreneurs from zero to product market. So it's a combination of how do we source and then the team we built and then the dedication and focus and precedency than doing nothing else. And obviously the track record, I think people look at it, what have you done? And, and then how do you build portfolio? What founders really say about you at the end of the day matters the most. What do you think the future of seed looks like? And how do you think about that in the context of building pair for the next phase of its growth? I don't know exactly what the future of seed looks like down the road. I think like any other category, there will be really strong performing fund who are specialists in one thing. I don't know. We are generous with specialists. You could be the best pre-seed seed fund in fintech, or you could be two people taking board seat. I help you with operations. I only do five companies a year. That's another model. I don't think there would be hundreds of these models. I think they're only the strongest will survive. Do you think that seed or venture capital in general is really going to change? We went through, obviously, a period with very low interest rates. The macro impacted the micro, I guess, is the, the, the highest level way of putting it. Do you think that impacts the things that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis and the ability to generate outsized returns now that we may be in a different interest rate regime market structure? I don't know. One of the good things about when you do pre-seed and seed is you don't really care about what's going on in the market because what I do today, 10 years down the road, if it's a really good company, we'll see the result. I mean, if you look at historically, at least it's 10 years. So we stay very hungry. We stay very humble. We stay very focused and only finding the best entrepreneurs today. Obviously, the challenge is for our portfolio companies who raise money before and then are, can they raise money today? What is the plan? So we have a very clear communication with them to making sure they have enough capital. But having enough capital is, is not enough. You need to reach many certain different things to be able to raise money. So I don't have any prediction in the future. 
I don't know what would be the size of the exits. Is it compared to 2020, 21, and part of 22? I don't know. But I know one thing. As you and I were talking, somebody is building the next big company in his or her own garage, and I want to meet that person. I think it's time for you to get back to work. <laughs> uh, I, I love to end the, this podcast with one final question that I ask everyone, which is, what is your most favorite or interesting alternative investment? My family. I think that's a great way to encapsulate this. You're actually the first person who's answered that. Some people have said their company, and you could say that your business is also your family. You've built a family of people who are building great things for founders. And your founders may even be your family, but no one has said they're family. But that I think encapsulates who you are so well because you build incredible relationships with everybody around you. And that obviously starts at home. Thank you, Michael, very much. This was a great conversation. You asked a question that nobody asked me. So it made me think a little bit more about portfolio construction and some other things. So I, I appreciated all the, all the questions you asked. Absolutely. It was, it was a pleasure to have you on. I'm so glad we had a chance to share your story and all the great things that you're doing at Pear. Thank you so much. Have a great time with your mother. So I know you're in studio in Maryland. So I'm pretty sure she's just going to cook a great meal after this conversation. It's lunchtime, your time. I hope so. Yes, she, I, I have no doubt she will. But I'll have to come to you to get some tea, though. <laughs> yes, please do. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Pejman. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sidgmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going